0: Today, I bring us to the book of Acts. I want us to look at the ministry of Stephen. Now, let me give you the context, just big picture, what's going on in this book. This is the sequel to Luke's gospel. Luke wrote a gospel and the acts of the apostles to a man named Theophilus, and he is explaining And Luke's gospel, all that Jesus did and fulfilled, and then he is continuing that story of Jesus' ministry through his apostles. And that's what we have in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts has somewhat simple, or we can simplify the outline of the entire 28 chapters, uh, looking at what Jesus told his apostles in Acts chapter 1 that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Luke then follows that geographical expanse of the gospel being spread and the disciples and the apostles going out in the Great Commission to tell others about Jesus. Luke's narrative in Acts follows that geographical expanse from immediately where they were in Jerusalem to a little bit further into Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the known earth at that time. An even simpler outline for the book of Acts, you could do the first part of Acts is about the ministry of the apostle Peter. And the second part of the book is about the ministry of the apostle Paul. That's pretty basic, but it's very helpful. It's a good way to think about it. And I bring that up, not only just to give us the context of the whole book, but then also to understand what's happening here in chapter 6. This is a transition in the story. And Stephen here is an important transitional figure in the story. We see how this part of the book of Acts... uh, begins the expansion from out of Jerusalem. And also, in some ways, it's the, the hinge in which the ministry shifts from Peter-centric to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and Stephen is in the middle of all that. Who is Stephen? Well, Stephen is a Hellenist. That means that by his upbringing, he was Greek-speaking. He was a Jew, but a Hellenist Jew. He'd, his native tongue wasn't necessarily Hebrew. And so while he was Jewish by religion, in a lot of ways culturally, he was he was very Greek. And he has come on the scene here in Acts chapter 6 because there was a problem in the church. The problem was this, that there were uh, the the Hebrew widows and the Hellenist widows within the church that needed care. And they talk about their being served at tables. And all this care and work along with the ministry of God's word was falling to the 12 apostles. And the apostles said, this is uh, becoming overwhelming and we need to focus on the ministry of God's word. And so they found six men that would come and help serve because it was the Hellenist widows that were being forgotten in the care and ministry of the church. And so we see historically that this is the beginning of the office of the deacon. Deacon means servant. And these men are set apart, and Stephen is one of these men. He's one of the first deacons. but what we quickly see is that the ministry that the Lord had for Deacon went beyond the ministry uh, the ministry of Stephen went beyond that of the diaconate, and that he has a vital and important role to play in the history of redemption. And so that's what we'll consider this morning. Um, before we do so, let's pray and ask for God's help. so Please join me in prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word. We want to believe it. We want it to, as we just sang at the beginning of that last song, that by your Holy Spirit working, that your word would come alive in us. The problem is not with the scriptures, it's with us. And we need your spirit to take what we just Heard last week that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it would come alive in us by your Spirit's working. So help us. Help us today to hear, to receive, and to apply your word and to live by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Acts chapter 16. Look at verses 18. 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We had heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Just last week, we wrapped up another semester of our About Your C class. This is our 10-week class that is part of the membership process for those who would like to join uh, University Reformed Church as a member. And um, our MC for the class is one of our ruling elders, Alan Knapp, and he does a wonderful job in leading the class, taking us through it. In a couple weeks, you'll get to meet some of the people who are going through the membership process now. We'll have them up front and introduce you to new members in the church. Uh, Alan, part of being the MC for the class, is that he gets us going each week. And then he also does an icebreaker. It's a big, we want the people in the class to get to know the church, and we want to get to know them. And so we do some fun icebreakers, and then we do some more serious icebreaker questions. Um, One of the favorites of, of Alan that he does each fall and each spring when we offer the class is, who's your favorite Bible character? And you can't say Jesus. That is the right answer. He is the hero of the Bible. Um, and so that's always and only the right answer. But outside of Jesus, who encourages you? Who do you find a model in your discipleship? Who do you look to? Um, who do you admire? And so, kids, who's your favorite Bible character? Is it King David? Maybe Queen Esther? A lot of people in the class, they'll say someone like Peter, the Apostle Paul. I can't recall if I've ever heard someone say Stephen. Now, Luke, in his list of people he would put down as heroes, he would say Stephen. And he would want more people to say Stephen, probably. He presents Stephen in a, in a kind of a, an astounding way. We know that Stephen is a sinner saved by grace, but it's all, it's all good stuff that is said about Stephen here. Nothing negative, nothing that we could question. We don't see Stephen's bad side. For sure, a sinner saved by grace. He was a man in desperate need of the Savior, but he's presented in a lot of ways as a, a model disciple for us. A model disciple in his devotion to his Savior, his service in the church. And here in verses 8 through 15, a a model witness. What could it look like to be a witness for Christ? Here, the church is coming under increasing pressure, and Stephen stands out, and the Lord uses him. So, I wanted to see the ministry of Jesus through Stephen this morning, and I have a a simple outline with a couple headings for us to follow along in our passage. So, in verse eight, I wanted to see the grace and power for ministry. Verses nine through ten, I wanted to see the indisputable message, and then in verses eleven through fifteen. We'll take note of the schemes of men. First, grace and power for ministry. Look back in your Bible at verse 8. Jesus gives grace and power for ministry. That's the first point. Here, we're told Stephen in verse 3 of chapter 6 is full of the Spirit and wisdom. Then in verse 5 of chapter 6, he is full of faith and the Holy Spirit and now, Luke says, he's full of grace and power. Now, when Luke says that Stephen is full of grace, he's not referring to Stephen's charming personality. Though he may have been a graceful man and may have had a charming, winning personality. He's talking about God's favor in enabling Stephen for ministry. God's favor in enabling Stephen for ministry. And when he speaks of him being full of power, it's not the force of his personality or even the exceptional giftings that he has. Though it would seem that, especially if you follow the story into chapter 7, that he is a man of exceptional gifting. That's not what Luke is highlighting when he says that he's full of power. It is God's equipping for ministry, God's favor for ministry, God's equipping for ministry. It's what we were told in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that Jesus would give his disciples power to be his witnesses. And what's important here for us to take note is that it wasn't just the apostles whom this power came on. Luke wants to show us that as the gospel goes forth, the same spirit that came on the apostles comes on all the believers. And they are all equipped to be witnesses for Jesus. They all have a part to play in the mission of the church. So here is the Hellenist deacon Stephen that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit for ministry. This is different Than what it was under the old covenant. Remember, prior to the coming of Christ and prior to the day of Pentecost, God would empower leaders for service and ministry, and occasionally others in the covenant community for special tasks. So think especially of those who were anointed with oil, the prophets, the priests, and the king. And the oil symbolized the the Holy Spirit coming upon them for what they were charged to do. But that wasn't everyone in Israel, and it wasn't everyone in the believing community. It was some. And that's one of the major differences between the old and the new, is that what was, for some, the empowering for ministry in the old is now for everyone In the new. And this is part of what you're supposed to to take from the book of Acts and that you're supposed to see from Stephen. Here, a man full of grace and power. God giving his spirit to all God's people, giving his spirit for the work of the church and for the mission of the church. I need to pause and reflect. Oftentimes, we get our our gaze fixed on the wrong things, and we see others around us who are so gifted that it would seem that they are full of grace and power, but not me. I compare myself to others and find myself feeling inferior. I suspect you may do the same thing upon occasion, but it's the same spirit, the same spirit at work. There's no inferiority between brothers and sisters in Christ. The same anointing, different task, same anointing. The same spirit that anointed Jesus for his work as the Messiah, the same spirit that raised him from the dead, the same spirit that empowered the apostles, the same spirit that filled Stephen with grace and power dwells in you if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a body, different parts with different roles and different gifts for ministry, but the same power source. Holy Spirit equips each of us for ministry. You may be tempted to think that it's the people up front who need the Spirit's power. Lord, forgive us if we fall into that trap to think that just because what we do isn't up front and in front of others and out leading that we could do any aspect of church life and service and ministry apart from the Spirit's help. No, preachers are enabled by the Spirit to do their work and so are Sunday school teachers to elementary age kids It's the same spirit that equips elders and deacons for leadership, that equips greeters to extend the love of Christ with a smile and a handshake. It's the same spirit. So when any of us step out and offer the gifts that God has given us, we do so in the confidence that it's not up to my strength or your strength, for effectiveness. It's not up to my winning personality. It's not up to any technique. Ultimately, it is the Spirit working through willing vessels. And this is how the church is to function as a body on mission in the world. But then we see with Stephen that he was full of grace and power, but it tells us that he was doing more. There in verse 8, He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So what does that mean, that he was doing wonders and signs among the people? Well, this is, Luke is saying the same thing that the apostles did, Stephen was doing. That as the apostles went out, they did things that could not be explained apart from a special endowment of the power of God. Now, what is happening? Well, let's just imagine the scenario. De- Stephen is a deacon, and there's a, a widow who's been, who's been injured. We don't know what happened. I don't know. Maybe it, she was run over by a donkey in the street. I don't. Something happened. She's injured. She's bedridden. They call for the help of the church. Stephen arrives. There's a good deacon. He's trying to figure out how to care for her needs, provide for her. And the Spirit of God comes upon him in a special way, and he doesn't even pray. He just grabs her by the hand and pulls her out of bed. And everyone's like, what just happened? He just did what Peter does. What is happening? Well, if we look at the book of Acts, we see that God was confirming the message that he gave to his apostles with signs and wonders. And Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, has a message for the Jewish religious leaders. And he stands bold like a, like, a, like a prophet of old and delivers a strong message to them. I mean, do you know who has the longest sermon slash speech in the book of Acts? It's not Peter. It's not Paul. It's Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And so the Lord, knowing that Stephen would play a role as a special vessel with the message for the Sanhedrin, confirms his ministry with signs and wonders. Watch the pattern as you read the book of Acts. Signs and wonders confirming the message as it goes forth further and further. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, it says that this is God's design. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So, Stephen, as a model witness, does that mean that you and I should seek after signs and wonders? Should that be the bar? Should that be the expectation for what a Christian witness looks like? Well, it's not the case. See, the message has been confirmed. And so the message that Stephen has in chapter 7, God has confirmed it. And we now don't look for the signs and wonders, but we cling to the message. And then the witness of that message, the power of God that raised people physically from ailments and sickness, is at work and the witness of the gospel, raising people from spiritual death to new life. And so we pray for healings and miracles because this is a world in which our God is at work and our Heavenly Father cares for his people. But the thing that we seek is the transformation of sinners through the message that has been confirmed and proclaim it and witness it. One verse, we see the outpouring of the Spirit on the entire believing community is confirmed again. God is at work here in Acts chapter 6 through his servant in the world. And God is still at work through the witness of his people in the world doing the greatest supernatural act, the new birth, bringing someone from death to life. Jesus is ministering through his church to the world. Jesus has given you, dear Christian, your Lord has given you a mission and he is still giving the grace and the power for that mission. Next, look at verses 9 through 10 with me. Here we see the indisputable message. And the simple point is that the gospel is an indisputable message. Why is it an indisputable message? Well, what we'll see here in this passage, it's indisputable message because the one whom the message is about equips his messengers, and it is a message that tells of ultimate reality. First, let's consider the context of what's happening here in verse 9 through 10. Then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Now, some have questioned, why would there be synagogues in Jerusalem? After all, the center of the Jewish religion was there in Jerusalem, the temple. Well, a synagogue is a place where the Jews gathered for instruction in God's law and for application to their life. And so similar to the way that we gather weekly for worship and to be instructed in God's word, the synagogue played a function in the Old Covenant community in that way. And so someone said, why would there be... uh, synagogues in Jerusalem where there was the temple, well, there's actually archaeological evidence that demonstrates. No, actually, there were places where people were gathering to do this. And so Luke tells us of one of these places, known as the synagogue of the freedmen. This is most likely founded by former slaves. And these are those who probably their servitude may have taken them to different corners of the Roman Empire, and now either having earned their freedom or having been ransomed or redeemed from their servitude, have now found themselves back in Jerusalem and this becomes a hub for these diaspora Jews. And when you look at the regions in which are identified who are gathering at this synagogue of the freedmen, it's across the Roman Empire and it's regions where there would have been Hellenist Jews. So here we see... The Hellenist Stephen going to, quite possibly, his old synagogue. The very place that he went to week after week after week after week. So he's going there now as one proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. We see that Stephen has been so convinced of the gospel that now he is intentionally Seeking to take it to every corner of Jerusalem. He's intentional. But then we're told that the witness he brings to the synagogue, those who disagreed with him could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he spoke. So Stephen walks in, waits his turn. And they say, would someone else like to instruct from the Torah, from the Old Testament law of God? Stephen steps up. He goes in. He shows them from the Old Testament that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And not everyone in the audience agrees, but they can't stand up to him. What's happening? Well, two things. One, it's the truthfulness of the gospel itself. A Christian, you've been entrusted with a message that truly cannot be disputed. It can be doubted, it can be denied, but it cannot be disputed because it speaks of ultimate reality. There is no other answer for why the world is like it is and why you and I, apart from Christ, are the way we are. There is no explanation of why we are can't as a collective human race throughout human history cannot solve the problems that perpetually fill history but the gospel tells us that we were created in the image of God and rebelled against our creator and that the real problem behind every problem is sin and that we need a solution outside of this world to fix What's wrong with this world beginning with corrupt and guilty sinners like you and I? And the gospel says that God who created the world, the God whose laws have been broken, the God who we have rebelled against sent the solution into the world in the person of his son who took on flesh, became the God-man to be the savior of sinners. The answer, the world is searching for, but will never find outside the gospel. We have an indisputable message. But as we share that message, the one whom the message is about equips us and will not leave us or forsake us. As we go and tell others the truth and the good news Jesus has our back. That's what Luke paints a picture here with Stephen. See, if you're reading from Luke's gospel into Acts, some of the language here would remind you of what Jesus told his disciples. Here Luke says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit. In Luke 21, verse 15, Jesus told his disciples, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The effectiveness of Stephen's witness is because Jesus keeps his promises. And he said when his people opened their mouth, that he would give them a mouth of wisdom and their adversaries will not be able to stand. Stephen was exceptional as a teacher and preacher, we see in Acts chapter 7, but ultimately... His effectiveness is because it's the ministry of Christ through the Spirit. And the gospel is true. So this is helpful. That here in this next chapter we see exceptional boldness by Stephen. This is what the church prayed for in Acts chapter 4. But boldness doesn't always look the same among the witnesses for Christ. Now, quite often, our boldness is in spite of our frailty and our weakness. Paul described his own ministry in quite a contrast to what Stephen does in boldness. Paul described his own ministry in 2 Corinthians, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, be encouraged. The gospel is indisputable, even on the lips of frail, stammering servants like you and I. So our charge is to depend on the Spirit and know Christ and His crucifixion and trust that when we open our mouth, He is with us. It's an encouragement to us when pressure increases on the church that we have an indisputable message. I appreciate much about what we see in this short account of this man's life. Let's round out the picture of this model disciple for us before we move on to our last section. Earlier in the chapter, Stephen is called to be a deacon. Now he's seeking to persuade his fellow Hellenist Jews of the gospel. In one disciple, we see deed and word. We see mercy and proclamation. Proclamation. A ministry of care and teaching. It's good. Some of us are gifted and drawn towards the ministry of care. And some are gifted towards the ministry of teaching. And that's good and appropriate. And that's why we're a body. Because Christian ministry is to be both. What we see here in one disciple is for us to be as the collective. We see in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 6 that he is a man willing to step forward and minister to those who are forgotten. And then here in verses 8 through 15, he's willing to go to those who he knew before he was a Christian. He pursues these people gathered at the synagogue of the freedmen. He goes after those who he had a history with. Isn't that kind of the hardest people to share the gospel with? Those who knew you before you were a Christian? It can be sometimes. Sometimes we're so overjoyed in what the Lord has done in our life, we just can't wait to tell them why I'm different. And sometimes it's, it's, well, this past Thursday at Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving with the same people and unbelievers in your family. To be intentional and to open your mouth for Christ. You may say, man, I missed opportunities Thanksgiving. Well, it's coming up again in a couple weeks at Christmas. So what do you do? Know Christ and his crucifixion. Be gripped by the gospel and trust the power of the Spirit working through your words. Go with the confidence that you have an indisputable message And allow it to motivate you to care for the needs of the hurting, to pursue the forgotten, and to lay it all on the line to share the gospel where there seems to be much to lose in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the world, Stephen is going to lose everything for the sake of the gospel. From this perspective of eternity, he gains all. Stephen Going to be the first martyr of the church. He flashes and then he's gone. But through his life and ministry, something is ignited and the church advances beyond Jerusalem. And what's amazing, and this is our last point here, is that God does this through the schemes of man. We look at verses 11 through 15. I want to remind you, and here's our last point, the schemes of men cannot thwart the plans of God. We see a calculated effort to discredit Stephen's witness and testimony. What is the tactic? Well, they they gather people together, they stir them up, secretly instigating men who will go around with a slander whisper campaign against Stephen. And so they say in verse 11, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then we see things culminate in Stephen's unlawful arrest. And Luke's writing it in such a way that his readers, having read Luke into Acts, would say, this sounds familiar. There's a conspiracy against one man, and the conspiracy has to do with the law of God in the temple. It's very similar to the accusations and the tactics that were used in Jesus' trial of false witnesses that were brought against to testify against him. And what are the charges? It has to do with Moses and the temple and the traditions of the Jews. And in a sense, we we don't have exactly Stephen's message that he was preaching in the synagogue. We have his message that he preached before the Sanhedrin in the next chapter, but we we get a sense of what he had to say. That here is this man who said, the Messiah has come and has fulfilled the law. He's not seeking to do away with the law. He's pointing out but, that through the law, no one will be righteous before God. And so God sent his son to fulfill the law. And that through his son, God's dwelling place would no longer be restricted to a temple in one city. That the Holy of Holies is no longer within a temple in Jerusalem. But all those who repent and believe in Jesus, the very spirit of the triune God comes to dwell in them. And so we get a sense of why these accusations come But Luke makes it clear that they were false accusations. It was a twisting and turning of the gospel message that is brought. And so Luke gives us his verdict over and over again. He makes it clear this is a false witness. And then in verse 15, he makes it very clear. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Luke is saying, here's a man who has been with God. These false witnesses have not been with God. And Luke has a a turn of irony here in the passage. That if Moses is what's on trial here, is Stephen's interpretation of Moses, he's showing that those who were conspiring against him are anti-Moses. They're the anti-Moses group. Because they're breaking the ninth commandment. They're bringing in false witnesses and false charges. And Stephen, like Moses, knows God, has been with God, and has a message for them, and his face glows. Like when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and he comes down with the law of God, and his face reflects that he has been with God. That's what Luke Wants to point out. But then, it doesn't lead to the immediate conversion of the Sanhedrin. Stephen is asked to give his defense. And in giving his defense, it leads to his punishment, his execution. It's an injustice. It's unlawful. It is the wrong verdict and it is according to God's design and plan that God would use the evil actions of the Sanhedrin and the men gathered there in the stoning of Stephen for the spread and the advance of the gospel this is what God does in his dealings in the history of mankind that evil men plot and it cannot stop what God is doing and will do. You go back to the book of Genesis, you see this over and over. You see it in the life of, of Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery. And in the end, it turns out that while they intended to lead this to Joseph's demise, God had a bigger, long-range view in mind that Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt would result eventually and his being second in command to Pharaoh, and then God would give him wisdom in interpreting dreams, and Joseph would prepare for a famine. And then one day, when the brothers who sold him into slavery arrive asking for food, Joseph reveals himself, and his brothers think, oh great, here comes the retribution. And what does Joseph tell his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20? As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant for evil, God meant it for good. The Sanhedrin meant it for evil for Stephen. God is doing something more. And this is a theme that comes in the book of Acts. That on the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter looks at his audience. And he tells them, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God's definite plan and foreknowledge, the acts of lawless men. God is using the sinful acts and the crucifixion and the unlawful trial of Jesus and his execution for the salvation of a bride for his son. In Acts 4, verse 27, the church prays, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Evil man, God's glorious and good saving purposes. This is encouraging for you and I, because oftentimes... We find ourselves again and again in situations we say, Lord, what are you up to? We ask ourselves, what is happening? Why are you allowing this to happen? Brothers and sisters, go, read the book of Acts and see that from Stephen's death and the pressure and persecution that comes on the church, church scatters and the gospel spreads And the church grows. As the church fathers would later say, it's the the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. Jesus never wastes the persecution of the saints. And his plans are never thwarted by evil men. I like the way he put it. Tim Keller once said pretty recently that when Jesus said that he will build his church in the gates of hell will not prevail, there is no expiration date on that assurance. No expiration date on that assurance. Oftentimes, we may feel like there is an expiration date and we look around us. But what Stephen couldn't even see himself, God was doing so much. One of the the regions of the the that gathered at the synagogue of the freedmen. talks about the different places where people are gathering there. One of them was Cilicia. Cilicia is a Roman province. Do you know what the leading city of Cilicia was? So men are gathered from Cilicia, listening to Stephen preach at the synagogue. The leading city in Cilicia is Tarsus. You know who's from Tarsus? The Apostle Paul it's from Tarsus. Could it be that Acts 6 is, is alluding to the first time that the Apostle Paul heard the gospel was in that synagogue and he was one of those who wanted to dispute and wanted to stand up against Stephen and so he followed the trial to the Sanhedrin and he holds the jackets of the men who pick up the stones to stone Stephen and then as the Apostle Paul is going from house to house terrorizing Christians, maybe one day we'll get to ask him in heaven. And he's, he's terrorized himself and haunted. And the words that Stephen said over and over at the synagogue and the words that Stephen said before the Sanhedrin ring in his ears and he's trying to suppress it. And then one day he meets Christ himself on the road to Damascus. The Lord never wastes the persecution of his saints if I could be so bold to add a phrase to the Heidelberg Catechism the first question we might say it like this not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven in fact all things must work together for my salvation and for the advance of his kingdom this is our confidence in the face of pressure and opposition, that our Lord never wastes our sacrifices and our serving. And that salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Amen. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Oh Lord God, sometimes we find ourselves trembling in fear before the gates of hell. When we should rightly tremble at the very presence of God and spirit of God has been given to us. Lord, what great honor and privilege it is to be your people. And in our own little, minuscule lives, you are doing things of eternal consequence, not just for the sake of our soul, for the sake of others. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see where you are at work and help our hearts to trust in you when we do not understand what is happening. Knowing that you are faithful and you are good, the gates of hell will never prevail against your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.